This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. This is the Photography Experiment Podcast, episode number 15, and today's special guest is documentary photographer Frank Boutonnet. He lives in Lyon, France, is well known around the world, and is as passionate about his photography today as he's ever been. You absolutely have to check out his work. If you can do that before you hear the interview, I think it'll add that much more to today's episode. I've linked to it in the show notes, but you can find him at frankboutonnet.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-K-B-O-U-T-O-N-N-E-T.com. This podcast and today's episode is sponsored by the Snap Photography Festival, which are all about education, inspiration and community. The next edition of the Snap Photo Festival will be taking place in West Wales in the UK in April 2017. I'll tell you more about Snap later in the show. Today's guest has been a documentary photographer for over 15 years. He's a celebrated wedding photographer, a photojournalist and a lecturer with a very long list of awards. He describes himself as a cool dude and a cool dad. He's based in Lyon, France. He shoots JPEG and is as passionate about his personal long-term photography projects as he is his client's work. I'm talking about Frank Boutonnet and I'm wrapped to have him with me now. Frank, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. Your work is it's simply amazing. Do you feel pressure to deliver every time you go to a wedding? Uh, this is a good question. Like a lot of people ask me this. Um, I wouldn't say I feel pressure because pressure is kind of a negative word, but I get uh, excited about it. So it, I turn it into positive thing. Yes, somehow it's kind of pressure, but I turn it into a really positive thing because I have really high standards for myself. And I think that my clients expect a lot from me also. Every time I start a wedding, they are all excited. Oh, Frank, we're so happy to have you here and we're expecting you to do a great job. So they try to put this pressure on my shoulders, but basically I just turn into really some positive thing for myself. So I'm not stressed at all. I'm just super excited, like a sportman who just wants to, to start the game. Well, okay. I guess you have some nerves or some butterflies, but really, so you're putting the pressure back on the clients to have a good day so you can photograph something good. Yes, exactly. This is also, this is a good point. I also say like, okay, guys, you know, I'm just a photographer. I'm just going to give you back what you're going to give me, basically. So if you want, like, sometimes people say, oh, I love these incredible dramatic pictures. Or I love my crazy pictures of people having fun or whatever. I say, okay, guys, but you know, I just witnessed what was in front of my camera. So if you want crazy pictures and you are not going to act like crazy, I won't be able to do magic for you. Okay, I'm not a magician. I'm just a photographer. So even if I have my inputs, you know, personal inputs and I try to have dramatic things in my photo, I'm just passing by what you give me, guys. So please just be yourself. Be who you want to be for your wedding. I'm going to be really happy to to register this on my camera, but I'm not a magician. <laughs> for sure, for sure. You describe your style and your photography as documentary. Do you think your clients understand what a documentary photographer is? Yes, I really do believe this. You know, like most of my clients, they don't want to pose. Sometimes I even have to, not fight, but I have to convince my clients to have at least the family portraits, you know, the formals. I don't like really to do this, but I know it's really important for the family memory. Usually like out of the most beautiful pictures you will provide with to your clients, 
maybe the only pictures like the family will get and, uh, you know, they are going to put on the walls. Maybe they are just the family pictures, you know, because this is like really classic ones, but at least you have everybody here and it's loaded with a lot of symbolism in it. So most of my clients, they really do appreciate documentary and I think they really do understand it in terms of they know it's candid pictures. I don't have any control of what's happening in front of me and they just want me to record what's going to happen during the day. So if you see wonderful window light coming in through the room while the bride's getting ready, but she's not in that light, will you ask her to move into the light? Yes, sure, 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 yes. So this is it, this is it. Like for most of the key moments of the day, like what I call key moments, it's like, okay, I'm not going to give all the key moments, but a few, so we can, we're clear on, on the words I'm using. Like, for example, when she puts the dress on, this is a symbolic key moment for me. When they're going to get in the church, when they're going to exchange wings, when they're going to exchange vows, when they're going to get outside the church, when they're going to, you know, the first and all these things. For me, are key moments. Like, people are expecting this. Okay, these are the foundation of the day. But between all these key moments of the day, I'm still photographing. And this is the core of my documentary approach, okay? And in these moments, if at some point I have to have some kind of control of what's happening, not control of people doing and saying things, but in terms of like moving things around, mainly for the getting ready part, or maybe close a little bit the curtain so I have more like dramatic and subtractive light, I will do it, I will do it. But it's like a theater play, okay? A theater stage. I like this image. Like I'm preparing my stage, and after my stage is prepared, is ready, I just put my actors in it. And my actors are just, you know, the bride, the groom, whatever happened, the guest, the family. Once it's done, I don't ask them anything else. But at least I prepare my stage. So I got rid of things. I'm talking about the getting rid of part, okay? I'm getting rid of things in the background. I'm cleaning my backgrounds. I'm just putting the right light for me. Once it's done, but I'm doing this when the people are just doing their things. You know, they don't even... Pay attention. I say, okay, don't don't worry. I'm gonna move things around. Don't worry for me. So they they know. So they're just not paying attention to me. I'm doing my stuff, and once it's ready, boom, I start photographing. You've been in business for a while, yeah. And I know you've got a ton of awards. You are a celebrated documentary photographer. I can imagine you must have had some big arguments with other photographers in the years, who must say you're not a documentary photographer because you're changing things. Ah, oh, no, I have never had this argument because I'm clear. I am clear. You know, like you have some issues like, okay, this is a wedding photography. So maybe we should give a different definition about documentary approach in wedding photography. Maybe I'm just thinking out loud. Okay. Sure. Because I don't have this argument because I'm not hiding things. I think we had a lot of issues in the photojournalism world, you know, with the world press sometimes because we knew that some pictures were set up. And I don't know if you have followed this up, but on the, um, you had this big issue this year and last year about the Steve McCurry pictures. Because now we discover that Steve McCurry, some iconic pictures he took by the past, in the past, were just set up pictures. Like they made it on the phone cover on National Geographic. But we know now that a lot of these pictures were set up pictures. And so you have all these issues going on. Me, I'm super clear about this. Like, this is a wedding, okay? Okay, I am documentary. I'm documenting a day for my clients. But me, my approach is to give super nice, like striking imagery, you know, really nice pictures. So I don't have any problem having a little bit of control of elements in my frame so that I get the picture I want. I'm just talking about the getting ready part. For most of the day after I won't have 
control of anything. You know, like the church, the cocktail, the dinner, the dance. I don't have control of anything. I'm just, you know, speaking about this little part. And I'm clear about it. So for me, the issue is when you hide this. When you say, I am a documentary, or I'm, I have a photojournalist approach, and I don't interact at all, I don't do anything. First, this is a lie, because as photojournalists, as photographer, first of all, when we're here, we have an impact of what's happening in front of us. We know that a lot of what photographers have this uh, conversation on this issue. Like The very fact that you are here witnessing and taking pictures of what's in front of you will have an impact of what's happening in front of you. So somehow... There is a little bit of hypocrisy for me, saying like, oh, documentary photography is like, you know, it's like a magical thing happening. It's like, wow, we don't interact at all. It's, it's really the truth. No, truth doesn't exist in journalism. This is all a question of perspective. I totally understand where you're coming from, and I love your explanation. What are your thoughts then on, say, Steve McCurry and his iconic images, the fact that they were set up? Yes, I'm a little bit disappointed, you know, like, it doesn't, okay, it's still a great photographer for me. He's still a legend and uh, I'm still really influenced by his work. I have no problem with this. Maybe the only thing is like, I would have liked and appreciated if he had like, had a clear state, like, how do you say, a clear statement about this. Like, okay, guys, here's my work. Here's how I am doing this work, but not lying about it. Because somehow not saying the truth is kind of lying. So I'm just a little bit, I'm comfortable with this. Do you think the images are less powerful now that you know that some of them are set up? No, actually, I don't care about this. I don't care about this. This is like, I'm not like a, an ayatollah of, you know, like truth, documentary photography. You know, like when you shoot documentary pictures, you have a lot of portraits, okay? And portraits are set up pictures. You want it or not. Like when you ask people, okay, don't move, look at this, look at this, I'm going to make a portrait. So... In the course of your story, it's clear that some, you have pictures that are just like candid pictures. And this is clear that at some moments you have portraits. And when you shot portraits doing documentary work, this is clear that you are just controlling people of the way where they sit, the way where they stand, where they look. This is clear. So at some point, even in a more like classic and uh, pure documentary approach, Somehow, at some point, some moments, you have control over things. But you say it. The whole thing, me, the key thing, me, is to be truth about how you do things. Once you are truth about it, you might like it or not, but at least you just say the truth about what you say. The issue for me is when you lie about your process of taking pictures. This is it. But I'm not making a big fuss of it. I just, honestly, I, I don't care. Like, I don't care. This is just too bad for him. Yeah, for sure. How did you first get started in photography? Okay. In 1999, I was living in the USA. I was living in San Diego, California, South California. And I was like, how I was 26 years old. And I didn't have a camera at this time. But my wife, at this time, my first wife, she had a camera and she was attended classes, photography classes. And precisely, she was attending photogenism classes. And I was like, I just crashed the class. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting in the back and I was listening to this, this teacher explaining what photojournalism is about and showing works. I just had a revelation. I was like, wow, wow. This is exactly what I had been looking for for years. 
a combination of so many things I'm interested in, like politics, history, arts, people, traveling, freedom. You know, all these things combined together was photojournalism. So from this very point, same moment, I really decided to spend more time studying photo by myself. And little by little, you know, I bought a camera, I started taking pictures. And honestly, at the beginning, it was, I really love photojournalism. But I was much more into like more wild pictures, wildness pictures, like landscape pictures. You know, it was California. It was like the land of Ansel Adams, you know, beautiful, wonderful black and white landscape pictures. So I was much more into this. But once back in France, I met the right person at this time and I created my collective that still exists. It's called Collective Item. It's a gathering of 11 people mostly uh, photojournalist photographers and videographers and graphic designer and project manager. And we work for the press, national, international press, like we work for Liberation, Le Monde, New York Times. Uh, we have a photographer who is working for National Geographic also. So this is an agency? This is an agency, but I call it collective because of the spirit we put into this, the philosophy like at the core of the collective. But basically, this is an agency, but with a really special philosophy. So... Yes, I started in, in 1999 when I was in the U.S. and I was not intended to be a photographer. But for sure, I knew that I didn't want to work in a company. I had studied for this and I started doing jobs in the U.S., like being in office and hiring people for internet company. And I was super sad. I was not happy at all. I was like, I was feeling like trapped, like a little animal trapped in the office. And I was just, I just wanted to escape this. And I think photography gave me all the energy and the keys to escape this world and just to, to jump into the real world. Fantastic. So did you start as a professional photographer in the US or did that start when you moved back to France? It started when I moved back to France. Like I really became a professional photographer in 2003. So when I moved back to France, my idea initially was to have like part-time job just to make sure I could like make a hands meet, you know, because it's really hard when you are a photographer, even now. Sometimes, not for me now, like hopefully, but, you know, to start as a photographer, it's really hard. So at first I was expecting maybe half part-time job and start slowly my photography. But really quickly, I realized that this is not possible. Either you jump in it or you don't do it. Okay. So, but still it took two years and a half. So for me, just to decide really clearly that I wanted to be a full-time photographer at this time. So I really became officially a professional photographer 13 years ago in 2003. Right. And was that approach right then, back in 2003, was that as a documentary wedding photographer? Exactly. Yes. The funny thing is like, okay, how I became a wedding photographer? Really simple. I think a lot of wedding photographers start the same way. Like basically I started photography. At this time I had like, I was in my early thirties and a lot of my friends got married. And they were asking me, oh, Frank, you are just starting photography. We are getting married. You know, obviously, we are looking for a photographer. Would you mind like just taking some pictures for her wedding? I said, like, yes, yes. You know, any occasion for me was super good just to make pictures and to train myself. So like early 2000, I started my first weddings, my friends' weddings. And I really, I really, I was shooting exactly the same way I'm shooting now. Like in terms of philosophy, no, I do many more things and, you know, I'm better now for sure, hopefully. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the philosophy behind this is exactly the same. Like when I think about it, I was looking for exactly the same thing. I was applying the same philosophy and 
I was as demanding on myself as I am now. So like, yeah, 16 years ago, I was exactly in the same mood and spirit as I am today. What was the catalyst that saw you getting booked in? You know, you've shot weddings now in, in Belgium, Morocco, Dubai, yeah. England, Tahiti, all over the world you've been. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Okay, so the question is how I book weddings uh, all over the world or how I, I shot these weddings. No, no, no. Like, Well, I guess, you know, here you are, you're just starting out, you're shooting friends' weddings in France. Yep. And now you look back, you look back at the last 13 years and, you know, you're a world-renowned photographer getting booked all over the world. How did that happen? You know, it's like when you look at the website of somebody or a biography, like you're in shoe lines or... <laughs> you summarize like 10 or 15 or 20 years. So it looks like it's pretty uh, sometimes impressive, but this is just the sum up of many years. So little by little, one wedding after one wedding, you know, like you get a first wedding abroad and this first wedding abroad leads you to another one because a friend of the bride or groom just recommend you for another one, blah, blah, blah. And after I happen also to live in the Middle East for a while. And so little by little, by recommendation, words to mouth. I would say like basically this is it, how it happened, by word to mouth. And so at the beginning, it was kind of like by chance, some people just ask you if you want to shoot their weddings in this country or this country. And after I realized this is possible, you put much more energy in developing that kind of the business, that aspect of the business. So how to develop this international, uh, I would say, uh, coverage of weddings, like basically many things. Like first is word to mouth. Like my clients are mostly clients living abroad. And how I would call this, like middle, upper middle class people or sometimes rich people. So people are who are used to travel a lot, who are used to travel for their work, for their leisures and vacations, and who have like friends all over the world. So basically, when I'm shooting a wedding, in, either in France or in England or in Spain or in Lebanon, the guests and the family come from all over the world, from Hong Kong, from Africa, from Middle East, from Europe, from uh, North America, from South America. So this is a gathering of people like, like with many national, different citizenships. So after that kind of weddings, usually the word to mouth works really well. And all these people who gather once in Dubai, for example, maybe after, like, they're going to get married in their home country, who is New York, that is New York, or whatever. So basically, this is it. Like, I started with my weddings and word to mouth with my type of clients who live abroad mostly and who just get married in the city or in the country they live in. I don't know if it's clear enough. Yes, yeah. Yes. Is it clear for you? Yeah, so it started off with word of mouth and it expanded over the years. It's grown little by little. And now, when you, like you said, when you look back, there's this impressive list of countries and cities that you've worked in. That's fantastic. Yeah. And just if I can add something, Andrew, there is something else now. Like, you know, like I give more and more workshops and conferences all over the world also to my fellow wedding photographers. And I love this part of my job. I love sharing. I love meeting all these friends, new friends. They're not close friends. I'm not, you know, mixing up everything, but there are people I get along well. And all these people recommend me also. So this is funny. Sometimes I get recommendations from photographers I don't even know. I haven't even met once. But, but people who just maybe listen to me on a conference or saw me on internet or whatever, interview. And it's like with clients, actually. Like now, 
It's really funny because, you know, like the way you explain things, usually when you have connection with the clients, that you need to have a connection with your clients so that your clients hire you. You know, when they have to pay a lot of money to hire you, you need this connection. If you don't feel this connection, it's not going to be possible. Okay. And now I feel this also with wedding photographers. Maybe at some point, I have some wedding photographers who connect with myself, with my story, with my philosophy, even if I don't know them personally. And sometimes these very same photographers just recommend me and for weddings, for inquiries they have, but they are not free. So maybe, maybe I have maybe 15 or 20% of my weddings every year that come from recommendation of other photographers. I don't even know sometimes. <laughs> That's amazing. This is funny, no? That's fantastic. Yeah, this is really fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about workshops in just a minute. But when I did some research before this interview, I always see reference to your long-term personal projects, but I don't see them online. What are these projects? Where are they? These are on my collective page, on my collective webpage. Okay. So is that paid work, that agency, or is that work you're doing for yourself? This is work I'm doing for myself, really, like for many reasons. The first one is that I need my time. I don't want anybody to tell me what I have to do. I don't want anybody to tell me how long I have to stay. So basically, these are really personal projects with nobody telling me what I have to do. So I am financing this project on my own money. And it doesn't mean that I don't have any, how do you say this? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, when a client wants to hire you, assignments. Oh, it doesn't mean I don't have any assignments. Mm-hmm. But usually the assignments I get from the press and from magazines and newspapers are not for my personal project. Okay. So this collective... This is you doing personal work, but it's also for magazines or publications to get in contact with you if they need a photographer and they want you. Exactly. But I'm not working a lot with press magazine anymore. I don't want this, actually. I prefer to leave this to my friends who really want to do this because even my personal projects are, like, are not truly 100% documentary project. It's mixing a lot of different things now. It's mixing a little bit of landscape photography. It's mixing up documentary, photojournalism. So I'm trying now to figure out different ways of telling stories. So it's why it's not totally 100% what we call photojournalism in terms of, okay, something is happening and I go there, I give 100 coverage of it, like in straight photography, photojournalism. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not interested in doing this anymore. I'm interested in now finding new ways of telling stories, new writings, new kind of writings. Okay, can you give me and the listener an example of a personal project that you're passionate about right now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I started a personal project 11 years ago that started with the death of uh, the Pope, John Paul II. Yes. You know, and actually this is a really long-term project that consists in following uh, the national funerals of big names of the 20th century history. So I started with John Paul II. So I made a list, but this is really a personal list, okay? This is not exhaustive. And in this list, I have John Paul II. I had Nelson Mandela. So a few years ago, I went to South Africa to follow and cover the Nelson Mandela funerals. There is Fidel Castro, Queen Elizabeth, Gorbachev, uh, the Dalai Lama, these are all big names for me that made history. You know, these are not just, just great names of like, even famous politicians, figures. They are really big, big, big names of history 
who made history in the time and they're still doing history now. So my idea is just to go there and to be in the middle of the crowd, to be in the middle of the people, just to get a sense of who these people were, you know, for their people. So I am taking a perspective from inside the people in these countries. So I had only two chapters so far, but this, it doesn't depend on me, you know. <laughs> it depends on, uh, <laughs> on these people's life and mainly death, you know. So I'm not expecting these people to die like soon or whatever. But I'm ready to go like any time to follow the funerals of uh, the, the people on my list. And through this, it's a way for me to give a, a new perspective on the 20th century, a little bit of the 20th century through the life of these people, you know. So I don't know if it's clear for you. This is a huge project and it's amazing. I mean, I've, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I haven't even got the words to describe how I think, I think it's an amazing project. I really do. When this idea comes into your head, so you, you know, you photograph that, that first funeral of Pope John Paul II. Yeah, exactly. Are you already picturing a 20, 30, 40 year project in your head? No, actually, I think it's the same for a lot of photographers. Like usually even big projects start with some little tiny things. You don't even think about it. But once it's done and you look back at it, you say, oh, but maybe I get something interesting here. But most of the time, like when you look at really incredible photojournalism works, most of the time it started with a little thing, either an assignment or by chance or whatever. And people just got into the story and little by little, they start building up something bigger. So when I went there, I, I didn't think about it. But after I, I was just witnessing all these things, I started having this idea. So I didn't have this idea when I, I went to Vatican to shoot John Paul II um, funerals. But right after this, I had this idea. And from this very same time, I started being ready to go at any time. And I even had this in my contract for wedding photography. In my contract, I put this line, if I have to leave at any time for some personal assignments, it's a close in my contract. Uh-huh. I imagine that you and your equipment and the way you see the world, that all changes over this time. So even from your first shoot when you went to photograph the funeral of Pope John Paul and then you go to Nelson Mandela's funeral, your style yeah. and your technique has probably changed a bit. Do you think in your head you have to stay true to what you did the first time? No, 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 no. no. This is... Yeah, hopeful, hopefully, really, I say hopefully, I improved a lot, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> and because when I shot this temple uh, second funerals, I just got my first digital camera, which was a Canon 350, really bad camera with bad lens. So quality of my files are not really good, to be honest. And I would do it another way today. But this is done. This, I can't do anything about it. So I just move on on this, you know. But now it was the first chapter. The second chapter was Nelson Mandela three years ago. And three years ago, I was like I am today, you know, like using the same equipment and with the same quality. So, I mean, at the end of this project, if I have like six or seven portraits of these guys and women, like I will just have maybe one chapter slightly different because it will have been the, the first one. That's it. But honestly, it's going to be really, I think, uh, a even treatment on all the project. I will make sure that we don't see the difference. Oh, so at the end, you might have all black and white prints, all the same size yes. in the display. Yes. Okay. Exactly. When you talk to someone in private, say your wife about this project, you know, or your daughter when she grows up, 
which wife? <laughs> <laughs> which one? Well, that's why I added all your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a joke. No, I got married twice and I got divorced twice. So oh, okay. It's a private. But I'm okay. So you're single at the moment. Yeah, I was kind of single. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's say you're talking to your daughter. <laughs> it's better. It's, it's, it's sure. And let's say you're talking to her and I know she's only young at the moment. Let's picture she's a little bit older and you're describing this project. Do you describe this to her as a, a legacy that you're going to leave behind? Is this something that you just have to do? Is this for fun? Like how do you describe a project like this and what does it mean to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I have to think about it a few seconds because I've never thought about it this way. Okay, I'm going to start with something else, but it's linked, okay? This is my way of thinking, okay? I connect things, but... Okay, right now I'm finishing a book about a war photographer whose name is Lindsay Adario. It's an incredible book. And when I started photojournalism, I think that like many photographers, I wanted to be a war photographer because of the romanticism side of it. But I didn't, I never did it. Because I think if you are not clear about what you, why you go there to shoot wars and really hard situations about people dying and going through super hard life experiences, if you're not clear about yourself, why you do this, you don't have to do it because it can be even dangerous for you. But you have photographers like Lynn Sadario who knows exactly why she's doing these things or James Nashtway. Okay, these people think truly deep inside them that they can change things through the pictures. And me, unfortunately, I would love to feel this. But deep, deep inside, I don't feel this. You know, I don't feel that my photography will change things. You know, like when you listen at the news, like for example, this morning, I don't know you in, in Australia, but we're talking again and again about the Syrian war. And now Aleph is just bombarded by the Syrian government and by Russians. This is awful what's happening there. Maybe we have like 400,000 people killed and you have kids. And so I'm super upset and mad about all these things. And still you had like so many thousands, billions of photography, photographers who went there and we took incredible pictures, but it didn't change a thing. So deep inside, I don't think that my photography will change anything. So to answer your question, now I decided really to do things for my pleasure because I want to do these things. And if it can help somehow, some people some, sometimes or whatever, wow, great, okay? But I'm not putting this pressure on my shoulder because since deep inside I don't believe it, I wouldn't be true to myself and I wouldn't be true to people I'm talking to. So I prefer to stay more humble and say, you know, guys, I don't know. I'm just, first of all, doing these things for me. I just, you know, and maybe a little bit for my daughter also. So she gets to know a little bit about me and the world we live in. But that's it. Could part of the reason that you do something like this so big, could it be to be recognized? You know, one day when you're gone, when I'm gone, or you're old and you have these incredible stories from these famous people that changed the world, they're going to say that was Frank's work. Yes, maybe, but really, to be honest, I'm not thinking about this. I'm not thinking about this legacy and anything. I'm just in the moment doing what I want to do now. I'm not thinking about this. I really want to be appreciating the very moment I am living in, really. But this is different for my wedding photography. For my wedding photography, I'm working for my legacy. 
This is something different. Really? So that's the opposite way. Yes, exactly. It's weird. It's weird. But this is true. And this is maybe why I am much more into wedding photography than I am in photojournalism now. Why? Because I think, like in a few words, I think that wedding photography is not considered as uh, the same art as portrait photography, fashion photography, war photography, you know, this kind of photography. In a history book, and for the photography critics, like wedding photography is considered like a low photography, you know, like, how do you say, like a, a channel, how do you say, branch of photography? You know, it's not considered. It's considered like, okay, family pictures, blah, blah, blah. And I think that all these people are wrong about this because you have so many incredible stuff going on in this wedding photography world right now and for the last five, ten years. But one day, some people somewhere in institutions will wake up and say, wow, but look what went going on for so many years behind us and we're not looking at this, you know. So I'm working for this because I am sure 100% that one day wedding photography is going to be considered as fashion photography, as portrait photography, as war photography. It's going to be considered as an art in itself. So I'm working for this legacy. Mm-hmm. I hope you're right. and I think it's already swinging that way, but I hope that's right. I hope that's true what you're saying. It's going to take time. It's going to take time, but it's for sure. Why? It's like when you, let's say in music or in literature or in painting, at one point, if what you do is good or even really good, at one point, history will recognize it, even if it's going to take time. True. And right now, I'm not talking about myself, okay? I'm just talking about the wedding photography industry at the whole, okay? Right now, you have a lot of things that, okay, I don't like or whatever, but I don't care about this. And this is fine. We need everything, you know, to, like, we need all kind of photography and qualities. But right now, you have so many incredible, like, photographers and works that have been done in the last years. But, like, we can't escape this. Like, the history books, you know, like, the photography history books can't escape just looking at this and recognize that somehow you have a super quality in this industry. It's going to happen one day or another. It's obvious for me. It's just a question of time. In 10, 20, 30, 50 years, it's going to happen. It's for sure. Yeah. You know, when I listen to you talk and I hear how passionate you are about your personal work, about photography in general, about wedding photography, you have strong opinions, you consider your answers. I'm struggling to understand why someone like you would enter so many awards. I mean, you have so many awards. Why do you still care? Why do you even enter these awards if you know? Ah. <laughs> Tell me. It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, awards thing. Okay, first of all, for the award thing. Now, I take this award thing like as a marketing tool. Okay, it's a way to me to market my work. Okay, it's a way for me to market my work for my clients, like my couples, and also for wedding photographers. In this business, if you want to be visible, okay, no, no, no. What I'm going to say, like, okay, in my business model, okay, I need to be visible. Okay, and to be visible, the way I choose is through the wedding contest. You know, I'm developing any networking with 
wedding planners. I don't like working with wedding planners. Every time I try to work with wedding planners, it's like it doesn't work. I don't know, you know. <laughs> I'm not working with blogs, you know, all these trendy blogs. I don't know how to do this because I don't know the name of the <laughs> the dress. I don't know the name of the uh, dresser. Or, this is not my thing. You know, I don't shoot details and putting beautiful flowers and blah, 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 blah. Ah! This is not me. So I'm not doing this, you know. <laughs> so... So you have like totally invisible photographers who are super good photographers. You don't see them on any platform, any any uh, groups like Fearless or WPGA or whatever. But still, they are doing a great job and they got their clients. But me, the way I choose to exist in this industry is to be visible through contests. Because this is what works the most for me. This is a first answer. A second one is I'm going to be super... To be frank with you, honest with you. <laughs> it's like, I think I am a competitive person, but not competitive in terms of, okay, there is uh, the good ones and the bad ones. And if you are good, people are bad. I'm not seeing this way. For me, being competitive just allows me to push myself ahead. Like, really, I just need this. I'm a competitive. You know, I did some sports and I love this. I love because... I just want to improve myself. I want to better myself, like both as a photographer and as a person. And this, this award thing, it's a way for me just to keep pushing myself, just not to, to say, okay, I know how to take pictures. I know I have my tricks and I'm going to repeat my tricks. No, 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 no. I hate repeating things like people who know me. I won't be surprised when I say this, but I hate repeating things. I hate doing twice the same thing. So usually it's really rare when I go twice to the same venues. And if you look carefully at my pictures, I really try to have something different on my perspective. Okay. I'm not saying like I'm inventing new things. No, no, no. I'm talking about my perspective. For example, something funny. You know, I just discovered the off camera flash. Wow. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Frank. Welcome. Um, you know, it's, it's just, that's you. But I don't care because I'm just playing with this for the last few months and I'm enjoying this a lot. Like, so I'm buying new flash every week. So I have five flashes now. I started from nothing to five. <laughs> and maybe it's going to end sometime, but I don't care. I'm just discovering things. I'm just putting this, introducing this like in my world, in my style and doing my stuff. Okay. So this is new for me and putting all this new work like in the light with the awards thing industry, it's a way for me to keep improving myself. Okay. And it allowed me also to meet so many people. Why? Why? Because my business model again is mainly based on this. You know, like Randu, we wouldn't be speaking together today if I didn't decide to, to propose my work for winning contests. So here today, I am enjoying this moment with you because at some point I decided to enter this contest. That's probably true. Totally. And I'm going to, okay, in the next few months, I'm going to have nine conferences all over the world. India, London, Italy, Peru, Argentina, Wales, uh, Portugal. I'm going to travel to Berlin. Why? Because... Like a few years ago, I decided to get into this wedding photography contest. And because I am still in it, 
you know, you can die like really quickly. Like you can be in the shadow really quickly because you have a lot of people and you have a lot of contests, maybe too many today. I keep presenting things and I need for myself to, to yes, to win some, some awards. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, I'm too childish about this, but I am honest. You know, I feel I need this. And it's for the better for myself because when I travel to these conferences, I make new friends and new connections. For me, it's also a way to travel. So this is wow! It's fueling my it's fueling my life. Listen, I wouldn't change a thing. Don't change a thing. Whatever you're doing is working. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is it. I love your work. This is working for me. This is not a model to follow. Just this is working for me. So I'm just following my path. I love it. I hope you're enjoying today's interview with Frank Boutonnet. He will be one of the speakers at Snap Photo Festival. It's happening in April 2017 from the 24th to the 28th on a little farm in West Wales in the UK. Now, if you haven't heard of Snap, it really is not like your usual photography workshop or seminar. It's an all-inclusive photography retreat. It's a workshop. It's a festival. It's a conference. And it's pretty much a week-long party all rolled into one. These festivals are attended by photographers from all over the world, but it's largely aimed at wedding and lifestyle photographers. But honestly, there are speakers from all across different sectors of the photography market and industry, including photojournalists, fashion photographers, landscape photographers, and academics. Not something you normally see at a wedding conference. I was speaking to Laura Babb, who's one of the main organizers behind SNAP. She insisted the main focus for SNAP is on learning outcomes, and it's not just about throwing a bunch of big names together and making that the attraction on its own. She and the other organizers really want you to be able to come away having experienced a life-changing transformation following the workshop. Now she tells me that the closing party is absolutely epic and there are always a few surprises along the way. And at the last Snap Photo Festival, there was a real wedding with two of the attendees there at the festival. It's not all learning and listening at these festivals. There is so much more going on there. Laura and the team have organized activities like what she calls wild swimming. I don't know exactly what that is, but it sounds like fun. Beach trips, campfire hangouts. She says it's a real chance to recharge your batteries before the wedding season starts up in the Northern Hemisphere and come away inspired, motivated and ready to hit the ground running. Go and check out the website, snapphotofestival.com. Have a look at the videos from previous events. Have a look at the speaker lineup. And if you're interested in going along, use the promo code SNAP100, that's all in caps, SNAP100, and you'll get 100 British pounds off your SNAP ticket. So if you're listening in Australia, that's $200 off. In America, it's probably around 150 US dollars or 100 pounds. I'm not sure what that is in Canada. I think that's similar to Australia, so probably around 200 Canadian dollars. So yeah, SNAP100, get 100 British pounds off your SNAP ticket. Again, the details are all at snapphotofestival.com. Let's get back into this interview with Frank. I want to ask you about conferences, but, you know, you mentioned off-camera flash. Yes. And you said yourself, this is nothing new. You're like, hey, welcome to the 2000s, you know, the 2016. It's been (laughs) happening for 10 years. So my question is, and this is, I think, something that a lot of photographers struggle with, you must be looking and seeing other photographers work with off-camera flash and even without knowing it you must be cop maybe not cop you must be taking inspiration from that work does that worry you that your work is going to be similar to someone else's 
Absolutely not. Why not? Absolutely not. Because like, okay, there's a difference between copying and being inspired by something. And if you look back at hearts, you know, like paintings, movies, books, music, it's like it's obvious with music. If you listen to rap music, for example, like it started all over with blues music. Like, I don't know, there is a guy who did this. It's amazing. Like, like he picked up like really famous rap musics and rap songs. And, you know, and uh, he talked with the guys. And sh- how do you say, I'm sorry, it's, it's hard for me to express this in English. But basically what these guys did is like, he was explaining that these rap songs didn't come from nowhere. Because these guys had roots and mainly, in, you know, black community roots, black music roots. Mm-hmm. So somehow we all come from somewhere. Everything we do is just, how do you say in synthesis? Synthesis? Synthesis, yes, synthesis. Yes, sorry, this is hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> me too, hard for me to say too. <laughs> synthesis. So everything we do is always a synthesis of own culture and where we come from. Everything. That's that's so true. Yeah. That's true. But I think with photography, it's easier today than ever to copy someone else because you can see what they've done, how there's YouTube videos, there's Instagram, there's websites. I mean, you can see exactly how they've done it and yeah. copy it. Yes, but okay, I am using the same techniques, but I'm not copying a picture. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a difference between copying a technique and copying the same picture. Like you have people who are copying the techniques to reproduce exactly the same picture. I am not interested in doing this. I don't care. I don't care. When I am studying and looking at pictures, I'm looking at a lot of pictures, a lot, like maybe, honestly, dozens of thousands of pictures. Okay, I see these pictures. I have these compositions and these moments in mind. But my point is not like, oh, I want to copy exactly the same pictures, what a lot of people try to do. I don't care about this. I'm just trying to understand how they did this, what they did this, and what kind of techniques they used for doing these pictures. And I'm trying to to introduce this in my style, with my vision, with I want to say. And this is how you make the difference. And this is how you build up a style, you know, your style and your own picture. It's by putting your own, you know, fears and hates and pleasures and whatever in your pictures, but using techniques. So when I'm looking to these guys, I'm looking at their techniques. I'm not looking at their style and the, what they wanted to express through this. I'm just mostly looking at techniques. And maybe I think that there is a confusion today between these techniques and compositions. But sometimes composition can be a technique. Okay? But I just try to put these inputs into my photography. And it makes a difference at the end. Even if you can, if you analyze a picture, you can say, okay, I see there's nothing new. Or this is a landscape picture. Okay, you put a off-camera flash at 45 degrees here in front of the couple and you have this. So this is nothing new. But you have this little thing you put that this is your soul. This is part of your soul that you put in this. And it makes a difference. And people can notice there's a difference. You say, oh, I can say this is your picture. I can explain. I can explain where does this picture come in terms of, you know, techniques and all these things, but still, this is your picture because you didn't try to reproduce exactly the same picture you have seen. And unfortunately, a lot of people say this, but as I say in my conference, is like people always will prefer the original than the copy. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I prefer to produce originals. 
<laughs> I think we all do. That's for sure. That's the mark of a good photographer. I don't know if it's clear. It is. It is. You know, when we we're talking about awards and you said almost offhandedly, I think there might be too many awards today. I don't want to talk about awards, but I want to talk about conferences because I could say the same thing about conferences. You know, there's almost too yeah. many today and you're going around the world about to do four or five or six in the next 12 months. Yeah. Can you learn photography at a conference? Oh, yes. But, yeah, honestly, yes. For me, okay, I'm talking about my perspective. I started my first conference three years ago with Fearless Conference in Amsterdam, okay? Since then, yeah, I travel a lot, either to attend, but most of the time it's to give speeches. But when I invited to give a speech, I always attend 100% of the other speakers. To learn? Always, like just to learn. First, because I think this is just natural, like this is as, a, I wouldn't say gentleman, but as a gentle thing, just like, how do you say, par correction? Uh, Participation? This is good manner. First, this is good manners. Oh, yeah, it is. Yes, true. Yes, first, this is good manners. I invited. It's normal for me just to go and to listen to other people. Okay, first. But second, is because I'm learning a lot. And right now, here now, three years later, I think I'm a better photographer because I attended all these conferences. And you know what? The funny thing is, like, at first I didn't understand, like, when I was going there and I was listening to people, I was saying, like, okay, basically, guys, we all say the same thing. You know, we're not inventing the hot water, <laughs> you know, or the wheel. So we are seeing all seeing the same things. Yes, but we're seeing the same things through our own history. We were on way of doing things and at some point it will connect with some people in the audience and some it won't connect and also depending on where you are on your path as a photographer and as a person you may connect or not with something that somebody is saying on stage really simple things for example one way when we talk about moments we all agree that okay basically these are about moments you know wedding photography and documentary wedding photography about moments Okay, okay, sure, we all understand this, okay? But this is a thing, there's a difference between understanding something, listening to something, and applying it, and just truly experiencing it when you should. And for me, I have been more focusing on moments for the last two years only. Before this, I was shooting moments, but it was not in my main, you know, goal when I was shooting weddings. And at some point, I just understood why it was so meaningful for me now. Okay, so I think that, okay, you have a lot of conferences. Even if you are an experienced and senior photographer, you know a lot of things, techniques and about history or whatever. But still, at some point, something that somebody is going to say on stage, even if it seems simple, will connect with you at this very moment. And you will start applying it into your photography. And it's going to maybe make a big change for you. And I really experience this as a person, really, and as a speaker when I speak with people after. I really experience this super strongly. Have you got an example where you heard a speaker say something and it changed the way you photograph? Yes, about these moments. Have you got a particular photographer or a, someone that you heard, an example? Yes, maybe there was uh, Tyler Wirken. I don't know if I am spinning it good. Yeah, I've interviewed him. Okay. Yes. Yes, and he was talking about this. Yes, Tyler Workin. Yeah. Tyler Workin. And okay, let me think. There's so many now. 
But I think, okay, if his name pops up now, it's because of this. Also, maybe like about, about techniques, about Flash. Okay, some people just talked about Flash. And um, Brian Galloway, for example, you know, from the US, a really great photographer, super nice person, hyper funny on stage. And he gave a speech about like how he was using like five, six, I think even seven flashes sometimes. Just crazy. And I was just like, okay, why not trying this? You know, for example, about prints, the importance of prints. Even if I don't do it, I'm just blaming myself always not doing this. But a guy last year in Portland gave a speech about this. Sorry, I don't remember his name right now. But I just realized how important it is to have this, really. And right after this, I decided to buy frames and to start printing things even for me and my daughter. So you see, like, little by little, speaker by speaker, sometimes I just pick up one thing. And usually when I start my conferences, I just start by seeing this. Okay, guys. We're going to spend one hour and a half, two hours together. I'm going to say a lot of things. I'm going to share a lot of things with you. I advise you to take notes first, but also don't try to apply all these things, okay, because it's not going to be possible. I just like, if you just pick up one little thing and you apply it directly into your photography or in your business model or whatever, just one little thing, wow, I'm going to be happy and it's going to be enough. Because little by little, if you apply one thing here, 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 over the years, it's going to make a huge difference. Beautiful. What type of things do you teach at your workshops or your conferences? Okay. So when people look at my work, they look at these awards things. They look at the weddings. I am shooting at different places with destination weddings. Most of the time, these people say, think that, wow, he's lucky because, you know, he has good materials to shoot. Like he has a good client, the good couple, the good venues and uh, the good light and everything seemed like perfect and, and in an ideal world, you know. But basically, this is not true. Basically, I have exactly the same weddings as anybody else most of the time. And the difference is here is how you look at these things how you look at the potential of, of light, of a venue, of an event, of what's happening in front of you. So basically, I'm trying to explain this. You guys, you are exactly seeing the same thing. At least not seeing, but you are experiencing the same kind of moments that I am experiencing. But maybe we don't look at this the same way. So I'm trying to explain how I look, the way I'm looking at these events, these moments. And I'm trying to convince people that from any kind of situation, you can get out with incredible imagery. This is my goal as a photographer. And this is why what I try to convince my audience, either through conferences or workshops. Guys, you can get out with an incredible picture from any moment of the day, any wedding. Whatever the couple, whatever the light, whatever, you can get out with incredible pictures. So this is at the core of my presentation. And when I say this, so I give many tools, like both intellectual, emotional, and technical tools. But the main tool I try to give is like, guys, if you want to find something, you need to look for this. If you don't look for anything, for sure you won't find anything. I love it. That's the kind of workshop that I would love to go to. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> You're welcome. I know we're coming up to an hour and uh, we're pushing the time. Can I ask you two more questions? Yes, no problem. Why do you shoot JPEG and not RAW? 
<laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Everybody asking me, you know, I'm going to surrender with the pressure of this. I'm going to switch taking pictures in a row, maybe. <laughs> this is a really good question. And sometimes, like, for example, yesterday I was doing some post-production of one of my pictures and I had a blue sky and I wanted to burn the sky and it was impossible because it was bad with JPEG. So many answers to this question. I think like, first of all, maybe it's because I'm lazy and I'm just... <laughs> and, <laughs> so I have many reasons. Okay, maybe one of the first reasons is because, okay, I'm lazy and I started shooting digital pictures in JPEG. So I had this habit that might be a bad one, but this is the way I work. Okay, so first reasons. Second one, since I started photography with films and even slides, I had this habit to be good straight from the camera in terms of, you know, lighting, white balance, and all these things. So for me, shooting in JPEG, allows me to be better straight right from the camera. I'm not expecting anything to, to be fixed after my pictures are taken in post-production with Lightroom of camera roll or Photoshop. So like, it means that I think most of my, what I call my raw pictures, even if this is not raw format, but I mean my JPEG straight from the camera, mm-hmm are pretty good in terms of, you know, white balance, composition, and all these things. Because I have this habit that comes from shooting with films, okay? So this is one of the reasons. The third reason also, maybe it's also a lazy one, is I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to put all these, to load all these pictures on hard drives and <laughs> all these hard disks and all these things. It's pretty light. But to be more like serious now, I've already printed, not books, but in magazines and I had exhibitions, I had made prints. And to be honest, sometimes I shot in raw format and when I was printing my pictures, I didn't see the difference. I didn't see the difference. You know, like my files are not like for huge prints, but for normal prints in books, in magazines, on walls at exhibition. Like if you are looking a little bit from, from, not from far, but at a normal distance at the prints, honestly, you don't see a difference, the difference between a JPEG file and a raw file. The way I work on it, I don't see the difference. And I am eager, pretty eager, that somebody proves me the opposite. But so far, I haven't been convinced of this. Well, it won't be me because I also shoot JPEG. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but you know, like, I'm not like, this is, again, I'm not telling you have to shoot in JPEG, you have to shoot in RAW, like, it works for me. So I'm just, I'm not giving lessons to people saying, oh, you have to switch to JPEG, this is, this is it, and blah, blah, No, 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 this is just, you know, I'm never talking about this, but people keep asking me. I'm just saying it works for me. So if it works for you guys, JPEG, shoot in JPEG. If it works in RAW, if you feel more comfortable, it's better. Okay, just it works for you. But don't try to convince other people to change or think this is what you have to do. I'm not into this. You know, I'm not trying to convince people. I'm just sharing what I do because it works for me. Mm-hmm, for sure. 
I just want to ask you one last thing, and, and this is a, a bit of a personal question for me because I was in France and uh, I'm lucky enough to get over there every couple of years to go and watch the Tour de France. And I try to take photos as often as I can. And my understanding in France is I can't take photos of the general public. Is that true? Okay. Actually, it depends. Normally, you can't take pictures in a street with a general crowd. But like if in this picture you put the focus in your composition or depth of field on one single person, more the focus on one single person, normally it's not allowed. It's forbidden. Except if you are shooting something that has a special meaning in terms of news. If it's in breaking news, something important, like the, the, the information rights come before the personal rights, okay, as person, okay? This is it. But this is true that this is a big, big issue in France because France is kind of one of the first countries where everything started in terms of photography and street photography and, you know, photojournalism. And now this is so hard to take pictures in the street because people, even kids, say, no, you don't have the right to do this. I can sue you. I'm going to take money out of it. Woo! This is super aggressive in France right now, really. Yeah, look, I was in the Pyrenees and at the local markets, which were beautiful. And I wanted to take photos of, you know, of the old ladies buying their fruit and vegetables and the farmers selling their goods. And it was okay. I got some photos, but I got a lot of stares and a lot of, a lot of looks. People didn't look very happy with me taking photos. Yeah, I know. It's, it happens a lot and even more now. It's really difficult. But there's a way to get away from this is saying like if people come to you and say, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just a tourist. I'm taking these pictures just for my personal use. You know, it's like nothing. And that's I just okay. enjoy the place. And that's okay. Yes, try. You know, like people will say, but still I don't want or delete your pictures. But you, they don't have the right to ask you to delete pictures, to erase pictures on your camera. They don't have this right. Okay, because people make a confusion between you taking pictures and you diffusing these pictures, like in terms of like you using these pictures to show these pictures, you know, to, to put this picture on uh, Facebook or social media and all these things. This is true that normally if you want to put this picture on, uh, on, on social media, you have to ask the permission, written permission. But if you don't do this, you can take any picture you want in the limit of this is a public space because people make a confusion between their picture of themselves as a person, private person, but in a public space. If this is in a public space, on a square, on a beach, whatever, you have the right to take these pictures. But you don't have the right to use it if you don't have the permission of the people in the pictures. Got it. Normally, theoretically. Wow. Yeah, it's different to Australia. Here we can photograph anyone in a public place, so it's a lot different over there in France, but yeah. it's difficult not to have the camera out because France is so beautiful. It's an amazing country. Yeah, I know. It's like they're pain in the eyes, <laughs> my fellow French people. Yes, I tell you. Like, and, uh, you know, with all the bombings also lately, people are really stressed out and super, super sensitive about all these things. But I think I, I don't take any more pictures in the street in France, to be honest with you. I don't do it anymore. It's not because of this, but I don't know about this. But I know that the few times I had to take pictures for assignments, well, I had to arguments with people saying like, well, you take pictures of me and, blah, 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 and, I, and you get into arguments. I had this like a few months ago, actually. I was covering a little thing and the guy just tried to grab my camera. He was wow. almost violent. I was like, oh, guy, like, what the fuck? It's like, 
So I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult in France right now, even much more than before because of all the bombing thing happening. If you're doing a project like that, you have to take a model release with you and have people sign it. Yes, but like I never do it. I don't care because like I consider myself like doing things but for a positive reason. I'm not doing these things for like for bad reasons, you know, or just like telling bad things about people. So I take these risks. And in a collective, we take these risks also. It's almost a political point of view, okay? Because like otherwise, we won't be able to inform uh, any more of anything. And this is France. It's supposed to be the free country with free expressions, you know? So if we cannot do our job anymore, it's going to be the end of it. So we're considering like a position as a political standpoint, like, okay, we don't care. We don't ask for this permission because we consider that we have the right to inform and to create things in the street. Definitely. Yeah. Frank, you are a true gentleman. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and have you on the show. I know the listeners are going to love what you've had to share today. Where is the best place for them to go and check out your work? I think now wedding photography, if you go on Instagram, this is, I think, the best way. I put almost everyday new stuff on my Instagram account. Okay. And if you want to look at some of my work, personal work, you go on this website. I just sent you a link, Andrew, collectiveitem.com. Collectiveitem.com. Okay. So I'll add links to your Instagram account and your website and also Collective Item in the show notes for this episode so the listener can easily yes. check all of those out. And uh, again, Frank, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And maybe we will meet one day. The planet is a small one, so I will be really happy to meet you in, for two in person. Okay? I would love that. I would love that. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. All righty. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Frank Boutonet. If you've got any follow-up questions for Frank, if there's anything that I didn't ask that you would love to ask him, head over to the show notes over at photobizx.com forward slash TPX15. I'm sure Frank will be happy to come back and answer any questions there. Since I recorded that interview with Frank, you might have heard that recently Fidel Castro passed away and Frank, true to his word, dropped everything and headed over to Cuba to document what was happening in the country during that time. So it'd be good to go and check out his work since that happened. And if you've got any specific questions about that period, what Frank had to go through to make all that happen, again, hit him up in the comments area in the show notes. Uh, Look, I've also got links to anything and everything that I mentioned or Frank mentioned all there in the show notes. I've got examples of his work and also that snap promo code. Remember that snap 100 to save a hundred pound off the snap photography festival. A big thanks to Laura and the team at Snap for sponsoring today's episode and making it all possible. So if you're looking for a photography experience, a workshop, a learning experience, a fun time, a retreat, and you can get to Wales in the UK for April 2017, go and check out the Snap Photography Festival. Alrighty, I hope you have an awesome week and I'll chat to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.